He will reign forever. Is He reigning in your heart now? Amen. What a blessing. What a blessing this morning has, has already been. What a pleasure and what a gift it is to be here worshiping the God who created us. Looking to Him for our strength. Looking to Him for our peace. As we get into our text this morning, we have a text before us that has some different perspectives that are considered concerning it. And I stand before you this morning and I tell you that Scripture is authoritative. Scripture is powerful. And as I look at this text this morning, I have an interpretation that I believe God has shown me. And I don't say that to be too weak in my interpretation. I just encourage you to look at what I'm saying this morning because it may be contradictory to what you believe. It may be contradictory to what you have heard. I've read commentaries on this text and two different commentators come down completely different on this text. But I just encourage you to follow along this morning. Look at the scripture. Ask God what he's showing you. And if you have questions and you want to talk to me about it further, please do. But as we look into the text, I am encouraged this morning with what has already occurred in this service and the affirmations that God has given me. We're looking at James chapter 5, starting in verse 13. If you want to follow along, and Mary Jo, whenever you're ready to play that text. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Father, we come before you this morning. We thank you for your truth. We thank you that you reign, Father. Lord, we pray that you would guide us through this text this morning, that your words would teach us and direct us, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we look at this text, the title that I chose for the sermon is called Let's Pray. And as we look at prayer, what is prayer in its simplest definition? It's talking to God. It's communicating with the one who created us. As I looked at this text, I broke it down again into three different sections. And the first section we want to look at is the command, the command that James gives us. And what he tells us is, is to pray. But in praying, who is, who is the object? Who is he talking to? Who is he instructing to pray to start with? First, he says, anyone who is suffering. What does the word suffering mean? Well, in the Amplified translation of the Bible, they, and I don't know if you're familiar with the Amplified version, but they use a lot of adjectives to define uh, different words. And for the word suffering, it says ill-treated. Suffering evil. 
Someone who is mistreated by someone else is basically the use of that word. And what he tells this person who is ill-treated and who is suffering, he says, let him pray. And then he kind of switches gears just a little bit and he throws in a challenge. He says, is he cheerful? Let him sing praise. You see, these two things are closely related. Praising God is actually a form of prayer. It's not different from prayer. It's communicating. It's praising God for the goodness, for his love, for his amazing love for us. We've been involved a lot this morning in praising God. What a gift that is. God is the God of the mountaintops as well as God of the valleys in our lives. Then James in his text goes back and he says, is there anyone sick? What does sick mean? And this is where the question comes in. What does he mean when James says sick? Well, if you look at the word, the Greek word behind the word sick in this verse, it's used a number of times in the New Testament, in the Greek. Eighteen of those times, it refers to physical sickness or illness. But 14 of those times, it refers to emotional or spiritual weakness. So it's 18 and 14. It's almost equally divided. In Romans chapter 14, starting in verse 1, it says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes that he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. That word weak is the same word that James uses in James chapter 5. And he's obviously talking about spiritual weakness. Weak is the same as sick. The word weak in, in that verse in Romans is the same as sick in James. Think about it in our English language. Imagine you make a mistake. I was, story was related to me this week about someone who made the mistake of asking a lady when she was due. And she wasn't. And he was sick. That's a spiritual sickness. Probably eventually turned into a physical sickness. But that's an example of how we use that word for two different things. And that's what I believe is going on in James here. It's all about context. And when you say context, you look at the surrounding scriptures. What else James has talked about in his letter to these Jews who are scattered all over the nation? In chapter 1... He told them to patiently endure trials. And you remember when we talked about those trials, those weren't just physical trials. And then if you look at James chapter 5, the beginning of this chapter, he's talked about the oppressive rich, and he talked to, the, to, his, to his readers about how to be patient with them, how to be encouraged. And then this just continues the thought. He tells them, If you're sick, if you're weak in spirit, if the trials of this life have made you weary, if they've caused you to question your faith, call for the elders, the spiritual leaders of your church. You saw it demonstrated here this morning. We had two individuals up here praying, yes, for physical healing, but also for spiritual strength and endurance to face whatever trials and tribulations this life 
has for them. James is encouraging us not to go to someone who's in the pit with us. When he talks about the elders of the church, he's talking about the spiritually mature. Those who have, through their fruits, have demonstrated faith in Christ. Not those who have demonstrated that they're aimlessly wandering around. They're not going to give you very good direction. James is saying, go to those who have proven their faith. No, they're not perfect. I was up here. I know they're not perfect. I was one of them. But seek people who are living a life of faith. Be encouraged by them in your spirit. Ask them to help God bring you out of your weariness. And he instructs those elders to pray over those who are sick, those who are weak. He also says to anoint them. What does he mean by anoint? What is the significance of the oil? Again, there's several different interpretations of what this verse means. It could have been medicinal. Many of you have probably uh, been using the essential oils that are around. Personally, my opinion, there is some physical help available through some of those oils. I encourage you not to put your faith in those oils, but to put your faith in Jesus Christ, just like I would encourage you not to put your faith in medical doctors, but put your faith in Jesus Christ. It's a matter of where our faith is focused, what we are putting our trust in. Is the oil sacramental? Is it similar to the level of baptism or to communion, which we're going to partake of here this morning? Or is it symbolic? And that's what I believe. I believe that what James is calling them to is a symbolic drawing attention to, setting apart of the situation. You see, it's common in Scripture to see anointing that symbolizes setting apart someone or something for a particular purpose. Was this anointing with oil required? I don't believe so. It's only mentioned this one time in the New Testament in Scripture as part of a prayer of healing. As I said, I think it's a means of drawing attention, of setting apart, but I don't think it's a requirement for the prayers to be answered. In verse 16, James goes on to to mention that this is not just limited to the elders, though. We talked about seeking the elders, seeking the spiritually mature, the ones who have displayed the fruits. And that's not just the leaders of this church. There are the spiritually mature in this church all around us who God may put your finger on, who encourage you to go to, to seek encouragement, to seek prayer. That's the way I interpret it. But in verse 16, he steps back and he says, Call on one another to pray. Confess your sins one to another. Unconfessed sins suppress spiritual strength. Unconfessed sins keep us from realizing the full strength of the power of the grace of Jesus Christ. The grace is not lacking. Our failure to depend on it is what's lacking. Our failure to surrender our lives to the lordship of Jesus Christ is what's lacking. Sin can also cause physical illness. It has been documented by medical doctors, even at Johns Hopkins, one of the most reputable medical facilities, that bitterness... Anger, anxiety can cause physical ailments, 
But just because you're having a physical ailment doesn't mean it's related to your personal sin. James also calls us to intercede for one another. He wants us to lift each other up, just like we did here this morning. Just like I pray that you guys do often. Well, that's the command. He calls us to pray. He calls us to take our weariness, to take our needs to God. And then he gives us a promise. What is that promise? In verse 15, he says, And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Is success in our prayers dependent upon the level of our faith? According to the verse we just read, if you have faith, you will be saved. And to be saved is to be delivered or protected. He goes on to say, confess and pray for one another. And you will be healed. And healed there is cured, made whole. If this were talking about physical healing then if you're not healed from whatever you're physically challenged by, you simply don't have enough faith. If you're going to interpret the verse that literally, then that's what it means. It means that I'm still blind because I don't have enough faith. The reality is, if it depended upon our level of faith, which it doesn't, then it would only take one person to heal every illness in the world. You say, what do you mean, Kevin? If you look back to Luke chapter 9, you don't have to turn there, but there's a story that we're all familiar with. There's a paralytic, and Jesus was speaking in the temple, and the friends of this paralytic couldn't get him to Jesus, and they were determined to get him to Jesus. And they crawled on the roof, and they removed a tile, and they lowered their friend down in front of Jesus. And what does the scripture say? It says, Jesus saw their faith. If physical healing were dependent upon the level of our faith, then there should be one person in this room who had enough faith to heal us all. It's not dependent upon our faith. Just like our salvation is not dependent upon our righteousness, our health is not dependent upon our degree of faith. You see, brothers and sisters, there is a spiritual realm and there's a natural realm. And in our flesh, because we live in our flesh, we like to focus on the natural realm. And we think that certain things have to happen, certain things have to be manifested. But the truth is, God wants us to focus on the spiritual realm. And then the things that happen in the natural are fruits of the spiritual. Not the opposite. Not dependent on what we do or how much faith we have. That leads us to another common interpretation of the text we have before us this morning. And that is, if you look at this verse as a natural sickness from what ails us physically, then your sickness is a direct result of sin. Because it's saying that confess your sins that you may be healed. That means your sins are keeping you from being physically healed. 
as I said before, our sins can cause physical ailment, but that's not always the case. John chapter 9, verse 3. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. He's talking about the man born blind. God used his blindness, his imperity, for his glory. That's why it was allowed. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10, Paul himself Paul had a thorn in his flesh, he termed it. And he went to God three times to ask that this thorn be removed. But God had a different plan. And Paul says, For the sake of Christ then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then am I strong. That's the same word weak that James uses for sick. When he is weak in his spirit, when he is downtrodden, he is strong because he knows that he has God to depend on. No matter what he faces, infirmities, calamities, God is there with him. Paul knew that. I pray that each of you know that this morning. Now, we're looking at this text from the perspective of of spiritual healing and encouragement. But I want to touch on the physical side of it for just a little bit. Does God still physically heal? Do I believe that? 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. Talking about the spiritual gifts, Paul says to another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. Gifts plural. I don't believe Paul is talking about gifting someone to be a healer. He's talking about gifts of healing to each of us as God wills. I believe that's what Paul's talking about. But it's according to his plan. James says to pray and anoint in what? The name in the name of the Lord. Where's that phrase come from? John chapter 14 verse 14. Jesus says, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. What does that phrase, in my name, mean? Basically, if you break it down, it means, it doesn't mean not with my name. He's not saying, if you say, Lord, give me a new car in Christ's name. It's not some credit card that we can punch in our prayer and get whatever we want. That's not what he's talking about. It's not like a trump card. What he's saying is, if you pray according to my authority, to ask for something in the name of Christ is to ask for something according to his word and for his glory. The man born blind was healed for Christ's glory, for God's glory. He's saying, according to my will. Anything you ask, according to my will. What is God's will? How do we determine God's will? Well, let's look at it in a little more general terms. You've probably heard the statement said that it's, it's not God's will that anyone should be physically sick. Well, originally, there was no death in this world. 
And then there was the fall. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, it's talking about God. He says, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. He desires that all people would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. But they don't. Because we have a choice. You say, but every physical ailment that Jesus touched when he was on this earth was healed. Remember, in my name, according to my will, he was Jesus. The people he touched, it was his will, his will to heal them. He only touched the people that he willed to be physically healed. Looking at some stories to make this point. Look at the story of Lazarus. Lazarus was sick for days, suffered no doubt, because his sisters were crying out, and yet he died. What did Jesus do? He came later and brought him back to life. He restored him. Well, Lazarus eventually died again. Jesus didn't raise him again. It was in God's plan. If you look at Matthew chapter 8, read that story sometime when he healed the centurion's daughter. Distance wasn't the factor in Lazarus' death. The centurion's daughter was not anywhere near Jesus. And Jesus told him, because of your great faith, your daughter has been healed. He healed her on the spot without her even being present. Jesus isn't limited by anything. You see, again, we get bogged down in the natural. We try to limit God by the natural. We try to explain all this. When he wants us to do, when he, all he wants us to do is be surrendered to him and trust him. I ask you this morning, how many people of faith, of deep faith, that walked a life of faith on this earth, have you seen die an untimely death by our terms? Was it a lack of faith? No, it wasn't a lack of faith. It was because it was God's overwhelming sovereignty and plan. God has a purpose for everything that he allows to happen in this life. Do our, are our prayers answered for physical healing? Absolutely they are. In my ministry, I had opportunity to pray over and anoint a man in his mid-80s who had been in a coma for two weeks. The next morning he woke up and lived another two years. Was that any special power that I had? No. That was a gift of healing that God had for that man at that time in his life. God is in the miracle business, but not on our terms, on his. James says the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. There is power in prayer that we are not even scratching the surface of. I stand before you this morning convicted as I studied for this message. Do I always go to God in prayer first? No, I don't. And I confess that this morning and acknowledge on the blessings that I am missing out on. I will fall back on the way I think things should be or what I might be able to accomplish under my own intellect or my own abilities sometimes before I'll go to God in prayer. May God help me 
realize the blessing that I'm missing. And I will continue to grow in faith and diligence and going to Him in prayer. That brings us to the example. The example that James gives us is the life of Elijah. And reminds us that our faith must always be in accordance with God's promises. If you read 1 Kings chapter 17 and 18, you read the story of Elijah and when the drought came. God said it wouldn't rain. And then God said it would. He used Elijah's prayers in accordance with his promises. God wants us to be completely surrendered to him. He showed great power in the prayers that Elijah brought. And if you read the story in 1 Kings 17 and 18, everything Elijah went through, he had to live by a brook. And God told him to stay there and drink the water from the brook and that the birds would bring him food and bread, meat and bread every day. And he did until the brook went dry. And then after the brook went dry, God said, okay, now go to this certain, certain town and this lady will provide for you. And Elijah didn't get downtrodden at that time. The scripture doesn't talk about it in those two chapters. He just in faith followed whatever God had for him. He was cast out. The other prophets had all been killed. But his spirit stayed strong. He rested in God. Are you weary in your spirit this morning? Some of you may be facing cancer like John is. Some of you may have had constant pain in your hands like Jean has faced. Yesterday morning I was in the hospital and saw Elmer Schwarzenegger at 92 years old laying in that bed waiting to cross over into glory. We don't know the day. We don't know the time. But can you imagine facing cancer as John is, facing the pain that Jean's facing, facing the last chapter of your life as Elmer is, without the grace and peace and the mercy of Jesus Christ? Jesus said, I have came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Christ died. He hung on that cross. He suffered in his flesh to save us and to empower us. If you're here this morning and you're living a defeated life, if it seems like nothing's going your way, have you made Christ the Lord of your life? James has had this letter full of many tests. I believe this could be another test. Are you living discouraged? Are you living downtrodden? Are you, or are you living encouraged, knowing that no matter what you face, God will carry you through? Does that mean that if you have doubts, then you've not made Jesus the Lord of your life? No, that's not at all what that means. You remember we talked about doubt earlier in James. And we referred back to the story in Mark chapter 9, I believe, where the father had taken his demon-possessed boy to Jesus. And Jesus said, if you, if you have faith, he will be taken care of. And the father said, I believe, help my unbelief. You know, in the English language, that word unbelief would seem like it'd be the opposite of believe. But again, you look into the Greek language, and that unbelief is a lack of. That father was still turned toward God, but he was still lacking 
that fulfillment, that full belief and trusting that Jesus would take care of him and his son no matter what. If you're here this morning and you're struggling and you have, you know in your heart that you have made Jesus the Lord of your life, ask him to help your unbelief. Help him, ask him to help your lack of belief. But if you've not made Jesus the Lord of your life, if you're trying to put up a fake front, act like a Christian, and you're just in constant turmoil within, and you don't understand where these other people are getting their peace and the trials that they're facing, and when you're honest with yourself, you know that their trials are much deeper than yours, but they seem to be handling theirs so much better than you are, I'll guarantee you it's because they have made Jesus Christ the Lord of their lives. They're not acting like Christians. They're walking in faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I'm going to come down front and I want to pray for you guys as a congregation. And then as a congregation, we're going to enter into the communion. We're going to come to the communion table together. And remember with the sacraments this morning what Jesus did for us. Yes, he's a great physician. Yes, he is a God who can and will heal us physically. But as James said, when we come to him fervently in prayer, and fervently is persistently, and it's not like God's waiting for us to be fervent enough. It's not like he's saying, well, when you've paid your dues, then I'll, I'll give you peace. I'll give you rest. No, that being fervent is for our benefit. A fervent prayer is for us to continually surrender and recognize that Jesus Christ is all we need. And as we are fervently praying, it changes us. It doesn't change God. It changes us. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning, Lord. God, we thank you for the privilege to come to you in prayer. Father, we thank you that no matter what weariness, what trials we face in this life, whether it be those who misuse us, those who persecute us, whether it be a physical ailment that we face, a physical challenge that we face, Lord, you are there. Lord, you will answer our prayers. You will give us the strength we need to overcome our weariness. All you ask us to do is to turn to you. God, help us each to turn to you this morning, Lord. Help us each to surrender our lives to you, Father. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of your Son. Lord, that he came to save us, but he also came to empower us to walk in this life, to honor and to glorify you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we look and as we transition into the time of communion, I ask you this morning, are you a fellow believer that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Have you confessed Jesus as Lord of your life? If you have not, I encourage you to do so. And we invite you to join us this morning at the communion table. Jesus himself led the disciples in the first communion. In Matthew chapter 26, starting at verse 26, it says, While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, 
This is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which was poured out for many, for forgiveness of sins. This practice this morning is a reminder and a celebration of what Christ did for us on the cross. By dying for our sins and thus satisfying the wrath of God by his sacrifice, finalizing his life of perfect obedience, fulfilling every promise of God. He secured our salvation. He made a way of reconciliation for us between between us and God. He secured the future kingdom of God for each of us when we put our faith and trust in Him. And He secured our inheritance in that kingdom. Our reward awaits. Christ's death on the cross was the climax of the Old Testament and the central theme of the New Testament. In Psalms 85, verse 10, God's righteousness and His peace kissed at the cross. What a gift that was. What a gift that is. God's love and His justice were both fully manifested in the death of His Son. So that's why we come this morning joyful, rejoicing that the gospel of Jesus Christ not only saves us, but also enables us to continue these lives in obedience to our Father in heaven. Jesus is judge, but he also fights our battles. At this time, 